We're back on the Ask LFC podcast. What's up, everybody? My name is Harrison. I'm the Worship Arts Director here at Lake Forest Church, Huntersville. Hey, this is Mike Moses, lead pastor of Lake Forest Church, Huntersville, and I'm glad to be here today because Angie and I almost died hiking Pilot Mountain north of Winston-Salem on Labor Day because we visited with parents in the morning, so we didn't hike Hmm. until it was 93 degrees. Oh, man. But it was great. Well, I'm glad you made it out. Yeah, thank you. Hey, today on, on today's... Uh, podcast. I want to share with you some background uh, theological research on the history of how human beings have generally thought about flourishing. What what does flourishing mean by a theologian named Miroslav Volf, who's quite a leading thinker today? Um, he was at the seminary that Aaron Gibson and I attended when we were there, and he's now at Yale Divinity School. I want to. It's some background. It did. It didn't make it into these sermons, Harrison. It didn't seem like uh, uh, it, it. everybody's eyes would have glazed, glazed over, but I think our podcast listeners will find this intriguing, um, and it's sort of an underpinning baseline for our sermon series. But before that, can I tell you about two books I've read in the last two weeks? Tell me about two books you've read in the last okay, two weeks, Okay, ask please. me why I have read two books in two weeks. <clears throat> I have a sneak peek as to why, Mike, but you're practicing what you preach. But tell us why have you read two books? <laughs> well, well, because my pastor, uh, the Holy Spirit convicted me when I heard my pastor talk about flourishing in a digital age. Mm-hmm. And so I went home and I took all the news apps off my phone. Mm-hmm. I, I grayscaled my phone. I, I did a number of other things, but those two were the most immediate. And, and I took social media apps off of my phone. Hmm. And my gosh, Harrison, the amount of time I was frittering away, frittering, hmm. in the evenings, just, I'd have one of these, these books have been in my pile for months. I'd have my pile there, so I felt good, like, baby, I'm going to go do some spiritual reading time. And, and I would even pick one of them and put it in front of me. Like, this is no lie. And then I would blah, 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 blah. Well, maybe there's something new on this one, on this one, this one. Ridiculous. So I've read two books in two weeks about something super important to me in our church. And and they're the two leading titles currently on the subject of multi-ethnic church and building one. And so I, I first read the book, How to Heal Our Racial Divide, What the Bible Says and the First Christians Knew About Racial Reconciliation by Derwin Gray. Mm-hmm. An old acquaintance of mine and a new acquaintance uh, because we're in a network together in the Charlotte area. Derwin has become quite well known for starting Transformation Church in extreme South Charlotte. He explored uh, being a part of our denomination before planning that church, and it's an independent church, and it's blessedly multi-ethnic. Uh, so I read that book. That's the first one I'll mention, and th- there's a lot in here. A lot of tactics, but what Derwin did for me that I didn't expect is he unveiled, as long as I have studied the Bible, as much as I know about it, he unveiled how multi-ethnicity and ethnic harmony is actually at each of the key moments in the biblical story. Hmm. The God's will for a fractured human community to become one is not ancillary to the gospel, it's core to it. Um, for And I'm just going to give two examples. One, God's initial promise to Abraham. I'm going to make this covenant with you. I'm going to make you a people. I'm going to love your people. But it's not about your people. 
you you will through you you will be a blessing i will bless every tongue and nation the word in the hebrew there is translated into the hebrew old, uh, into the greek old testament ethne hmm. it's on purpose the root of our ethnicity different people groups it's right <laughs> bless all the all the ethne is in there and and now i tended to think of that because of my background Oh, so we can evangelize every ethne um, only. And it is about that. It's about the gospel spreading to all of them, but it's also about the people of God becoming every ethne Mm -hmm. and reconciled to God and one another as God's ultimate will. Um, We see this, uh, of course, in Jesus' Great Commission. You know, go and make disciples of all ethne. And then, interesting, this, I knew this, but I'll just share one more thing out of, out of Derwin Gray's book, How to Heal Our Racial Divide, which I recommend highly. Um, and he'll get up in your grill just a little bit as he did mine. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the, uh, when Paul, uh, uh, when the first conflict in the church happens, it was about ethnicity. Act, uh, I believe it's chapter 6. The Greek people in the early church were like, hey— our widows are getting overlooked. You're preferring the Jewish widows. They're getting more food at the distribution. Hmm. That's just a whole worth a whole sermon in and of itself. If the first conflict in the church, the redeemed people of God, was over ethnic uh, uh, unreconciliation, then we shouldn't be surprised at it today nor run from it. We should run hmm. into it. And interestingly, the solution was not to be colorblind. Oh, man, I don't see color. Yep. No, no, God created color, and he values it so much, it'll be in the new heavens and the new earth. He likes it. They named color, and they said, you know what? We need to appoint some Greek people on the food distribution team because they understand other Greek people, and they will ensure that there's a sense of equality in the distribution, and... And the Greeks, as well as the Jewish widows, will feel seen and understood through their life experience. Here's what Peter didn't do. You know what? It'd be easier <clears throat> if we had a Greek people church yeah. and a Jewish people church. Hmm. They did they did the That wasn't an option for them, Harrison. Same thing when Paul is dealing with all the churches he started. What are the number one problems that all the New Testament letters were written about? Conflict between the Greek and Jewish believers. Yep. So, first of all, they were not um, colorblind, so to speak, and it, uh, it's not a new issue, but the insistence never in, in Antioch in particular is where it would have made the most sense because that, uh, inter-ethnic conflict broke out in the church. But all the churches Paul writes to, never once does he say, hey, why don't you just be the Greek church over here where nobody minds if the meat you bought for your barbecue might have been sacrificed to other gods or might not have and why don't you just be jewish a jewish church where y'all can all be happy and observe all the high holy jewish days like you used to in honor of god no you have to be a reconciled community this seeing this trace throughout scripture again i'm me i have cared about racial reconciliation since i was 18 years old and there was new stuff in here for me biblically Hmm. 
you'll see over here, Mike, from my sabbatical a couple years ago, still have on my desk, Building a Multi-Ethnic Church by Dr. Derwin Gray, and got some really... Oh, it was his first book. Okay. Yeah, I got some really cool notes out of that, and, and a lot of the vibe that you're talking about, just really appreciate. So I, <clears throat> I joined Mike in recommending about anything you can get your hands on by Pastor Gray, because he's an awesome dude and a f- yeah. former NFL football right. player. He's an accomplished yeah. dude. So shout out to Derwin, uh, who we are now... <clears throat> Lake Forest Family Churches, Transformation Church, and 22 other churches in the Charlotte metro area are now, uh, we have formed a church multiplication network to encourage churches with a heart for church planting and multiplication, encourage one another. We may share resources if one of us has training, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, second book that I read by Brian Loritz, L-O-R-I-T-T-S, The Offensive Church. And I wondered if he meant we're supposed to be offensive, as in, like, you should take offense. Yeah. Yeah. Or go on offense, and go on offense is what he meant. Uh, And here's the subtitle to to Brian Loritz's book, The Offensive Church, Breaking the Cycle of Ethnic Disunity. Really good stuff in here. I found his book uh, more actionable for a church like ours that's saying, Lord, we we don't want to blow everything up here. But we need to look more like our zip code as a gospel priority. We've been sent to this zip code to to reflect uh, it, what it can a reconciled community look like within this zip code around Jesus. Um, I mean, I was picking up prescriptions at um, Walgreens uh, just two weeks ago, and I was right here, exit 23, Rosedale. Mm-hmm. And I was <clears throat> struck by the looking around. We This is a diverse zip code. Right, not relative to some zip codes, but relative to what it was when I moved here, and I have eyes to see that now. And then I pictured us on Sunday morning and said, "We're we are blessedly um, looking more like our community slowly, um, but we're not there yet." So the number one thing I took out of Loritz's book, "The Offensive Church," was he said, um, "Let's not make diversity our goal. How about ethnic?" harmony Hmm. or ethnic unity Uh, gospel ethnic harmony i liked that diversity is a word that can be mistaken for a world a word only from the world the world's point of view because it's used a lot today uh and it means different things and it's it's become a political volleyball of a word i don't it's not a bad word but the gospel priority is ethnic harmony or ethnic unity i forget which of the words he uses over and over and so just Lake Forest friends, I, I'm going to be playing around with that being our stated vision in this regard, is that our congregation would increasingly uh, reflect and pursue and be able to pursue ethnic harmony because we do reflect the ethnicity that God has placed in this zip code under his good providence for the Lake Norman area in this century, in this time. Um, but that would mean to pursue ethnic unity within our congregation, there needs to be ethnic plurality. Mm. Um, and, and that would make it a worthwhile goal. If that's one of the main goals of the gospel, of God is taking, uh, his desire for the human community is to take a bunch of ethnicities that hate each other. And throughout history, that's, that's a summation of history in a fallen <clears throat> world. Yep. Um, or, or want to dominate one over the other. The, um, 
that's not even Machiavellian. That's just a realistic reading of history. And he wants to build them into one reconciled community to demonstrate the power of the gospel. Uh, I want that. Yeah, we and we've talked, we've talked over years. My 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 kids go to schools around here. Your kids went up through CMS schools, and you look around and the 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 kids our kids are friends with in their classrooms. Like we want we want Lake Forest to be able to be a place that looks like a classroom at Torrance mm-hmm. Creek or Hopewell or wherever mm-hmm. it is. So, but is reconciled at a deep level. That's right. Because we have risked relationship, we have risked offense within the blessed community, and we have been frank. And addressing uh, what divides, and we go first in what reconciles and unites, which is Christ. Awesome, Mike, and thank you for the recommendations to the books. Now, we've one other area we want to get to just for a minute on the podcast this morning. We've been in a series all about human flourishing, and uh, Mike, you always have a ton of stuff that you have researched, you've looked into that just can't make it into 35 minutes on Sunday that still might be things that people would be interested to hear. So what, where have your studies and travels taken you over the course of this series as you've gotten, gotten sermons ready? Aaron Gibson unearthed this 24-page <clears throat> paper, which you could find online by Miroslav Volf, mm-hmm. V-O-L-F, Pre, a, a preeminent, um, I, I'm not sure what his primary discipline is. I believe he's a New Testament theologian. Um, and I'll just jump right into it. it. It's it's as a Christian saying that obviously, as we saw week one in our series and every week in the bumper when uh, our new staff member Sam with his British accent reads Psalm 92 over us, that flourishing is a word that our Heavenly Father spoke over his people Israel uh, of uh, he wants shalom for them, mm-hmm. and he speaks over his people the church. And Wolf is asking the question, what does that mean to those of us who worship the God of love? What is his will for us regarding human flourishing? What's the definition of that? And and he finds it's very different than the typical Western civilization definition, and he traces <clears throat> three different eras of the views of human flourishing. Hmm. So he talks about uh, the predominant view of flourishing today um, in the West, and we can just say America. Yeah. Um, uh, is satisfaction that many people in the West have come to believe, like to feel in our gut, let's put it this way, that a flourishing human life is an experientially satisfying life. Emphasis on experiential and satisfying. It doesn't mean that only that the experience of satisfaction is a desirable aspect of human flourishing. Um, it, it, uh, um, it means... Um, in contrast, for many in the most in the West, experiential satisfaction has become what, if we're formed mostly or only by culture, experiential satisfaction has become what our lives are all about. That rings true to me. That experiential satisfaction doesn't merely enhance flourishing, it defines it. Hmm. So, if we're the more in captivity we are to culture today, We can't imagine ourselves flourishing if we are not experiencing satisfaction in the moment, if we don't feel happy, as the preferred way of expressing it goes. Hmm. Uh, And so for the macro culture in the West, flourishing uh, consists, like it's definitive by having an experientially satisfying life. No satisfaction, then you're not flourishing. And those sources of satisfaction might vary. It could be from appreciating classical music to using drugs, 
from the delight of high cuisine being a foodie, frankly, he says, to the pleasures of sadomasochistic sex or from sports to religion. What matters is not the source of the satisfaction. This is important here, Hmm. but the fact of it. What justifies an activity or a given lifestyle or activity is the satisfaction it generates, or more commonly, the word we would use is the pleasure. And when people experience pleasure, that form of satisfaction, we feel that we flourish. As Philip Reef noted in a, a book all the way back in 1966, <clears throat> The Triumph of the Therapeutic, ours is a culture of managed pursuit of pleasure, not a culture of sustained endeavor to lead the good life as defined by foundational symbols and convictions. One of the great philosophers of our era, Sheryl Crow, worded it this way, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Now contrast this, Harrison. Wolf goes on to delineate. Contrast contemporary Western culture and its implicit default of human flourishing. Contrast that with the two dominant models in the history of the Western tradition. Uh, and he starts by surveying 5th century church father Augustine or Augustine or St. Augustine, you'll hear me refer to, an African bishop who's the most influential theologian in the church since St. Paul. Um, uh, he represents well from the 400s A.D. the first of these two macro tradi- traditions in the West of human flourishing. In his reflections on the happy life, uh, I've read this, In his major work called On the Trinity, if you want to look that up, Mm -hmm. Augustine writes, quote, God is the only source to be found of any good things, but especially, especially of those which make a man good and those which will make him happy. Only from God do they come into a man and attach themselves to a man, Hmm. end of quote. Consequently, Wolf continues, human beings flourish and are truly happy, when they center their lives on God, the source of everything that is true, good, and beautiful. And Harrison, I think it's been pretty clear in our series on flourishing. We've rooted ourselves. That was the whole first Sunday. We had thought about, hey, the first Sunday, let's jump right in on flourishing and anxiety, flourishing in technology. And we're like, no. <laughs> if you're Psalm 92, he who is rooted in God and planted in the house of God will flourish like the palm tree, will be sappy and green. I love Psalm 92. Hmm. It's been a gift. So this is, this is, this is rooted in Augustine. Uh, and so let's keep going. God is the source of everything that's true, good, and beautiful. And as to all created things, the things that we get pleasure from, they ought to be loved. But the only way to properly love created things and fully and truly enjoy them is to love and enjoy them, quote, in God or in Christ. Um, and Augustine, he agrees with what most people think, that those who are happy have what they want and need. Um, but he adds immediately, this is true only if we want, quote, nothing wrongly, end of quote, which is to say if we want everything in accordance with the character and the will of our creator whose very being is love, and he's communicated his will in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And so the supreme good which makes human beings truly happy, uh, or as Wolf likes to say it, the proper content of a flourishing life, (laughs) consists in love of God and neighbor and enjoyment of both. 
in, in his uh, magnum opus, I don't know where that word came from, uh, work by Augustine, which is City of God, which I tripped out on one summer on my back porch. Uh, St. Augustine defines this as, quote, a completely harmonious fellowship in the enjoyment of God and each other in God. So that's the first in Western Christian tradition understand understanding of human flourishing that it's rooted in love of God and will of God. And when our desires are ordered rightly to love God supremely and love things that give us pleasure, like some of the lists I mentioned earlier, rightly according to God's will, that is human flourishing. Whether or not I'm experiencing the dopamine hit of what we would call happiness in the moment, that's a flourishing life. Which lines right up with that kind of inverted kingdom stuff that Jesus was talking about all the time. It's kind of this, to, to gain your life, you have to lose it. You have to be willing to let go of control, which for us probably here in the West is one of the scariest parts of all yes. that is, is releasing it to say like, you're telling me to do this. I'm going to try it and I don't know what's going to happen, yeah. but I'm hoping and trusting that the, the, the promises um, that you've made are going to lead to my flourishing, but it's hard. To use an extreme example, wait, I can control the drug hit. Oh, and I know it's going to feel good, and I will feel happy in the moment. Even though, like, rationally we know, but I'm going to end up living a life of despair, big picture. But when I'm injecting, when I'm inhaling, I am feeling, I can, and to your point, that's insightful. I can control that, the delivery of that. But if I trust God's limitations, because I love God, and he says, don't be inebriated with this stuff, you can use it a little bit. I mean, some stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Um, don't, but don't be inebriated with it. Can I trust God that if I only go to the, the feeling a little happy stage, that I will flourish in other areas of my life without having that hit over and over and over? Yep. Okay. The next, around the 18th century, Wolf says, a different account of human flourishing emerged in the West. It was connected with what scholars sometimes describe as a, quote, anthropocentric shift, end of quote. You see why I didn't intro my sermon with this? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, he called this a gradual redirection of interest from the transcendent God to human beings and their mundane affairs. Hmm. And this is the birth of what we now call humanism. And this new humanism, which had a, has a lot of positivity to it. This new humanism was different from most ancient ethics of human nature, writes Charles Taylor in his book, A Secular Age, which I never made it through, <laughs> in that its notion of human flourishing, quote, makes no reference to something higher which humans should reverence or love or acknowledge, end of quote. For Augustine and the tradition that followed him, this something higher was God. Modern humanism became exclusive by shedding the idea of human lives centered on God. Now, since the late 1700s, Harrison, plenty of Christians did a good job of employing humanism. Galileo. Uh, Galileo, as a scientist, used humanism to have the freedom to explore our galaxy and our solar system and learn new things. God wasn't trying to limit us from that. He did a great, so that was a good use of the principles of humanism while he remained a fervent worshiper of God uh, and centered on God throughout the end of his days. 
uh, by the way, overmuch is made of his conflict with the Catholic Church. But, hmm. um, uh, but modern humanism became exclusive by shedding the hmm. idea of human life centered on God. And now this, uh, this was a new insight for me. And yet, even as the new humanism rejected God and the command to love God, it retained the moral obligation to love neighbor. The central pillar of its vision of the good life was a universal beneficence, transcending all boundaries of tribe or nation, extending to all human beings. True, this was an ideal that could not be immediately realized and which some groups really didn't own. But the goal toward which humanity was moving with a steady step was a state of human relations in which the flourishing of each was tied to the flourishing of all and the flourishing of all tied to the flourishing of each. Now he jumps way ahead in history. For example, Karl Marx's vision of a communist society was encapsulated in the phrase, quote, from each according to his abilities to each according to his need, end of quote. That was historically the most influential and the most problematic version of this idea of human flourishing. Now he's going to talk about one more shift. You got time for one more shift? Bring it on. Okay. In the late 20th century, Late 20th century, that's my life. Another shift occurred. Human flourishing came increasingly to be defined as experiential satisfaction. That's where we started. Mm -hmm. Uh, Though, of course, other accounts of human flourishing remain robust as well, right? Including the Christian one in our church. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Having lost earlier reference to, quote, something higher which humans should reverence or love, end of quote, It now lost reference to universal solidarity as well. What remained was the concern for the self and the desire for the experience of satisfaction. It is not, of course, that individuals today simply seek pleasure on their own, isolated from society. It's also not that they don't care for others. Others are very much involved. But others matter mainly in that they serve an individual's experience of satisfaction. That applies to God as well as to other human beings. Desire, which is he calls the outer shell of love. Dude, that's quite a phrase. Hmm. Desire, the outer shell of love has remained. But love itself, by being directed exclusively to the self, is lost. Hmm. It, it reminds me, my, my <clears throat> we let our kids last week do a... You can go to sourpatchkids.com and you can create your own bag. You put little thingies in there, everything that you like, but it's kind of a, you know, you're getting to choose and put this in there and there's times where life just doesn't work like that and things come your way. Uh, And it's not all, I want a little bit of that. I want God, you do this thing, but not that thing. And I want to pick this and put that in there. So yeah, that that resonates. Again, the illusion of control Mm -hmm. um, that is an attempt to transcend our, our essential, our ontological limitations as human beings. We are limited as homo sapiens. Only God is unlimited, and he has communicated to us how to live well, how to flourish within our limitations. So Wolf uh, here at the end says, a way to view the three phases in the conception of human flourishing. This is Western civilization. One way to view these three phases in, in the understanding of human flourishing um, Uh, Love of God and neighbor, universal beneficence, and then experiential satisfaction. Hmm. One way to view this is to, so again, the three eras. One, love of God and neighbor. Two, universal beneficence. Three, experiential satisfaction today. Hmm. It's a way to view this is see them as a history 
of the diminution or the lessening of the object of love. (laughs) From the object of love being the vast expanse of the infinite God, love was first tapered to the boundaries of the human community with humanism. And then love has radically contracted in my lifetime to the narrowness of a single self, one's own self. And a parallel contraction has also occurred with the scope of human hope. Uh, Wolf gives America as a case study. Um, In the book, The Real American Dream, uh, written about 20 years ago by an author named Del Del Barco, he traces what he calls the diminution, the lessening of American hope. And uh, this is interesting because America may be symptomatic of, of those three trends that we just said. He says it's possible to trace an analogous lessening of hope in most societies of their elites. Um, a glance at the book's table of contents reveals the main point of his analysis. Listen to this. The chapter headings read, first of all, God, and then nation, and then self. <laughs> uh, the infinite God and the eternal life of enjoying God and one's neighbors— at least some neighbors, <laughs> was the hope of the Puritans who founded America. They didn't get the neighbors part yeah. uh, even close to 100% right. But that infinite, enjoying of infinite God and an eternal life glorifying God was the hope at the founding of our nation. Then he moved forward. American nationalists of the 19th century, the 1800s, noticeably Abraham Lincoln, transformed this Christian imagery in which God was at the center into, quote, the symbol of a redeemer nation, and they created America as, quote, a new symbol of hope. The scope of hope was significantly reduced, and yet there still remains something of immense importance to hope for, the prospering of a nation itself, which regarded itself over and over, I just read a book on this, as the chosen people, called upon to, quote, bear the ark of the liberties to the world, end of quote. That's a Herman Melville statement. In the aftermath of the 1960s and 1980s, I'm an 80s dude, uh, as a result of the combined hippie and yuppie revolutions, instant gratification became, quote, the hallmark of the good life. It is only a minor exaggeration to say that hope was reduced, quote, to the scale of self-pampering, end of quote. (laughs) Moving from the vastness of God down to the ideal of a redeemer nation, hope has narrowed, argues Del Barco to the vanishing point of the self alone. So let me tell you where Miroslav Volf concludes this 24-page paper. I'm skipping now a big chunk. So it gets to, like, what do we do? Well, the challenge facing Christians is ultimately very simple. Love God and neighbor rightly so that we may both avoid malfunctions of faith and we can relate God positively to human flourishing. But that challenge is complex and difficult. Uh, first of all, he, he says the one challenge is we need to explicate, explain, and demonstrate God's relation to human flourishing with regard to many concrete issues we face today, from poverty to environmental degradation, from bioethical issues to international relations, from sex to governing. We did that with technology in one of our sermons. Mm-hmm. We need to show how Christian nations of God and human flourishing apply to concrete issues. A second challenge, he says, is we need to make plausible the claim that the love of God and our neighbor is the key to human flourishing. Uh, 
for centuries, non-believers have not just called into question God's existence, but railed against God's nature, against the way God relates to the world, hmm. and consequently against theistic accounts of how humans ought to live in relations to God. Uh, sometimes it feels as if they would not have minded God existing if they could have just believed God is actually good for us. Hmm. And so how can we make plausible God is good for us and our flourishing? And, and finally, we'll end with this. Maybe the most difficult challenge for Christians is to actually believe that God is fundamental to human flourishing. It's not sufficient for us to believe it as we might believe there might be water on some distant planet. We must believe it as a rock-bottom conviction that shapes the way we think, preach, write, and live. Charles Taylor tells the story of hearing Mother Teresa speak about her motivation for working, working with the abandoned and the dying of Calcutta. She explained she did the hard work of tending them because they were created in the image of God. Being a Catholic philosopher, Taylor thought to himself, I could have said that too. And then being an introspective person and a fine philosopher, he asked himself, but could I have meant it? That, concludes Wolf, I think is today's most fundamental challenge for theologians, priests, and ministers, and Christian lay people to really mean that the presence and activity of the God of love, who can make us love our neighbors as ourselves, is our hope and the hope of the world, that that God is the secret of our flourishing as persons, cultures, and interdependent inhabitants of a single globe. That's the Ask LFC podcast for today. Thank you guys for tuning in. We always love your comments and suggestions. Thanks for jumping in. See you guys.